committed, okay, and so on, and having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Uh, and I want to dwell for a moment on that, the, the standard of teaching. Later on in Romans 10, uh, Paul <clears throat> summarizes the essential teaching this way. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, for, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So uh, this is a teaching, the teaching or doctrine they heard and by which they were saved, okay, and which they committed themselves to. Um, and, and notice the importance of the teaching. It has practical importance, uh, certainly for our salvation from the wrath of God and also for our sanctification uh, on our, our growth and holiness, even on our joy and assurance in our salvation. Uh, some of those things you won't find right in that immediate context, but eventually, uh, in other parts of Scripture, you will. Um, <clears throat> Later on, towards the end of his life, Paul, in Second uh, Timothy 1.13, and in the surrounding area, refers to this as the pattern of the sound words, the pattern of the sound words, uh, which you, let's see here, which you have heard from me, Paul to Timothy, okay? And the good deposit, okay, he's talking about this, this uh, standard of teaching as a good deposit entrusted to you, which, which he expected Timothy to guard, okay, to guard it, and also to entrust to faithful men who, would, who will be able to teach others. Uh, you could say that the whole of 2 Timothy was oriented towards this end, fighting against deviation from it, charging those in his care regarding these things, um, uh, making sure people had a grasp of these things, a variety of things, the core of which, of course, is the gospel. He saw this as passed on from one generation to the next in the church, and besides the preaching and teaching of Jesus and the apostles, this pattern is found in the scriptures, the Old Testament, for the earliest church. If I, if I sway into the not, uh, not, not hearing me, just someone raise your hand or something. Uh, the, the Old Testament for the earliest church and eventually before, get this, before the end of the, second, of the first century, the New Testament Okay. Uh, this doesn't mean that all teaching in the gathered church must be systematic theology, uh, which I think describes this, the form of this series. This standard of teaching would include the, include the form of what we refer to today as biblical theology, or some people would call it covenant theology, and arguably there are other forms of teaching and preaching that, that would be based on this standard of teaching that Paul refers to. Besides this, looking into what the scriptures say about the topic of sin specifically, it, it, it equips us by the Spirit, the Word of God, the standard teaching, the doctrine, equips us to, by the Spirit, to put sin to death. 
and leads us to the renewal of mind. That, that was chapter 8 in Romans, Romans 12. Uh, leads to the renewal of our mind by which we're conformed to Christ and not the world. Knowledge, knowledge, not ethereal feelings and new agey stuff, but knowledge, true knowledge that changes and sanctifies us. Go, go back to, to Romans 12 on that. So that was just a quick aside as to the importance of teaching and teaching doctrine. And by the way, I'm, I'll just encourage you on this. Uh, I've already had reason this morning to dwell on the idea that not only are people like Blake and others up front teaching you, teachers, but you are teaching and admonishing one another. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly Following that, flowing from that, teaching and admonishing one another. Okay, that's, that's part of the fellowship. That's why we're gathered here. Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. Chapter 3, Sin's Privation. Okay, Sin's Privation. Um, <clears throat> a couple of disclaimers first. Um, as I work through this, I may often be quoting from Jones directly or in summary. Uh, if it sounds wise and thoughtful, it's probably straight from his book. So just, just know that. I won't have to stop every time and say that. Another thing that I think is really important is um, and I probably should have checked this with Blake or Ryan first before saying this, but I believe it's true. I'll be referring to what happens regarding sin in the person, okay? But remember, remember that largely I'll be speaking about what happens in the natural man, the fallen man, the unregenerate man, okay? Uh, Christians, the regenerate Christian, has resources to deal with indwelling sin. So that, that, that sinfulness of the, of the uh, natural man finds its way into indwelling sin, continuing in the Christian. But the one big, besides regeneration itself, one big thing that uh, makes a difference is that we, we have resources to deal with that. So if, if, you're, if you're hearing all of this about knowing sin, you're not just muddling around in sin or the doctrine of sin. You're understanding sin from God's point of view and you have awareness and you have resources. The scriptures, the fellowship, uh, the spirit, and other things, okay? And the week-to-week -week gathering and preaching and teaching. In his introduction, Jones poses the central question he explores in this chapter, which is, what is sin? Uh, we'll, we'll also see that this includes what sin is not, uh, kind of the flip side or negative side of it, and some corollary questions. Uh, what, does, what does it mean to sin? Are we responsible for all of our inclinations? 
you'll see in James um, 1 <clears throat> that there, there's a kind of a progression of how sin, how we finally end to come up to the point of sin. Uh, it begins with inclinations. Are we responsible for all our incli inclinations? Are our inclinations voluntary or not? And as to the importance of these questions, he says, uh, excuse me, these questions are crucial for understanding both ourselves and our relation to God, not only as sinners, but also as saints. <clears throat> Sin inhabits and infects every one of us. Uh, it's not, but, but it's not an alien substance that enters our being and defiles us. There's a mystery to this, okay, uh, that's difficult to understand. Uh, and I'll point out what he says about that difficulty in a moment. Uh, <clears throat> I suspect Rob may have covered some of this uh, in his presentation on original sin last week, but I, I wasn't able to attend that. And sin is not of the sin is not of the essence of the human nature. Okay, no, no, that's an important point to dwell on for a moment. The essence of the human nature is Adam created in holiness and righteousness. Okay, from which. Okay, we know what happened, he fell. Uh, yet, it's not of the essence of the human nature, original nature, and yet it corrupts each one of us. Uh, so it'll be helpful to parse through these questions to help us see sin rightly from the Bible's point of view. Uh, he has several sections here in this chapter, Jones does. Uh, one is, Sin's privation and positive inclination. And some of these terms we'll explain as we go through it, uh, which helps us to understand the nature of sin. Um, the next section, the ethical and spiritual implications of this view of sin, uh, this definition. Then he'll look at a couple of corollary areas, of voluntary and involuntary sin, and then human actions as regards evil and righteousness. And then, helpfully, in every chapter, I believe, he closes with some <clears throat> commentary on uh, application of what he's teaching. Uh, as we go through here, I will try to give the, what I, what I think is the main point of the section, of each section, and uh, the importance of that. In this section, uh, this is the section where G Jones forms a definition of sin, defining it both uh, negatively, negatively and positively, or both as privation and an inclination. Uh, and there are other ways of parsing out these two sides of the definition. First, Jones acknowledges the difficulty of defining sin, and yet the necessity of acknowledging it uh, on pages 141, I'm sorry, 41 and 49. He quotes Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, Here is a great mystery of iniquity. 
that, uh, that which is a non-entity in itself, it's a nothingness, as one other Puritan says, yet should have such a mighty efficacy to trouble heaven and earth. Jeremiah Burroughs. And he goes on to say then, uh, the sin is a mystery. Well, this may not be Burroughs. This may be somebody else. Sin is a mystery that we cannot understand, that, but that we must acknowledge. Uh, if that sounds contradictory, understand that what the Bible helps us to do is understand sin to a certain level in, in, in a way that really leads us in sanctification. And we, we may not know what sin is, but we do understand something of its nature and effects on us. We can understand that. In defining sin, he distinguishes between two parts of the definition, privation and positive inclination. And of course, we'll need to define the terms he uses. In doing so, we'll go down the road somewhat in understanding the nature of sin. First, uh, sin defined as privation. Uh, the dictionary definition helps here. Privation is the absence of a quality attribute or condition normally present. And that last phrase is important. It's not the absence of uh, an attribute. It's the absence of an attribute that you would expect to find. Okay? Um, an example would be that cold is a privation of heat. Cold is not a thing in itself. It's a privation. And if you've endured some of our winters or some of the northern winters, you probably think, no, cold is a real thing. <laughs> uh, but it is a privation of heat. For another example, uh, for a human to be unable to see, we would call a privation of sight. Okay? But does this... It doesn't see, but is that a privation? No, because it's normally, you wouldn't expect a podium to have, have uh, sight. That may be elementary, that, uh, but that's, what, that's part of the definition of pri privation. To go further, by, by normally present in, in the context we're talking about, we think of how man was originally created by God in this case, in righteousness and holiness. Okay. Uh, Thomas Goodwin says this, sin is first a total and utter emptiness and privation of all that, is, of all that righteousness and true holiness which God first created in man and which the law of God requires. Sin is first to a total and utter emptiness and privation of all that righteousness and true holiness which God first created in man and which the law of God requires. As such, sin is a parasite of the good. It feeds off what God created. It manipulates that which is good and distorts, perverts, defaces, and spoils it. Uh, Second, sin defined as a positive inclination. Positive, of course, doesn't mean good. It means a, it logically, uh, it's a logical term in this case. A, a, sinful, 
a positive sinful inclination to all that is contrary to grace. This is a good one again. Namely, a proneness to sin of what kind soever, which any law of God forbids. Okay. A positive inclination to all that is contrary to grace, not namely a proneness to sin of which kind of what kind soever, which any law of God forbids. He further breaks this part down into two parts. Uh, the inordinate lustings of the faculties after things f- earthly, fleshly, sinful. And, and I believe that that word lustings is carefully chosen because that, that um, uh, points out that initial, what, what later on, a Puritan will call the first motions, okay, of uh, temptation and sin. That's the first part of uh, positive inclination. The second part is an enmity unto God and unto what is holy. Now, here, I I want to remind you again, I I am talking about the natural, fallen, unregenerate man uh, because we remember in... Especially Romans 8, very clear, the early parts of Romans 8, this inability to, and this hostility to go toward God, which, which <laughs> when I say inability and hostility, I'm covering two halves of that definition, privation, inability, uh, hostility is the positive inclination. Sin involves not only the lack of righteousness, but also the inclination towards unrighteousness, leading always to enmity against a holy, righteous, and infinite God. You, after, after reading that sentence, is it any wonder that at end times people will be not fleeing to God for protection from his wrath, but fleeing to the hills and asking the hills and the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, okay? They don't have anywhere to go if they've fled from God. That's a sobering thought. It helps to think of the opposite of this, okay? The biblical, and that's, that's one thing I, I think is helpful about this book, but he'll, he'll often illustrate one thing he's saying about sin by by looking at the opposite of it in, in, the Christian, in the Christian life. The biblical Christian ethic of holiness understands that true righteousness, the opposite of sin, involves no, not only refraining from evil, but doing good. Okay? You have to do both. What, what, what does privation and inclination look like in the human person? In our fallen, in our natural fallen state, privation, and I, I'm not going to be reading some of these passages, but you can look at them. In our natural fallen state, privation in Romans 5, 6 to 9 is seen as weakness, un, ungodliness, powerlessness, m- moral frailty. Okay? In terms of Isaiah 1, five to six, I am gonna read this one. We lack 
health spiritually. We lack spiritual health. The whole head, it, it, it must have, I, I can't imagine being in Isaiah's shoes when he writes this down. He hears it, he writes it. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. It's the whole thing. Um, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Okay. In Isaiah 53, 5, uh, again, this lack of spiritual health, uh, with his wounds, we are healed. And, of course, that points toward the solution to this, doesn't it? Okay. We have these wounds, this unhealth with his wounds, his wounds, we are healed of ours. In 1 Thessalonians 2, the destitute state of the person is seen. Re remember that you uh, were at that time separated from Christ. Again, we're talking about privation. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the pro covenants of pro promise having a little bit of hope no, no hope. No hope and without God in the world. Now, now think about the, the importance of that. We're, we're used to thinking of ter in terms of um, common grace. God, God is uh, kind and gracious to all his creatures, giving them breath and life and food and rain. Thankful, thankfully for that. Okay. But the, the, the unregenerate, the natural man is without God, okay? And in eternity, they won't experience even his common grace, okay? Only his wrath. Then we see that privation leads to positive inclination. Uh, Romans 1.18, man, by their unrighteousness their lack of righteousness, suppresses the truth. Uh, the remainder of Romans 1 is summed up in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The righteousness due is re replaced by unrighteousness. The absence of what is good is replaced by the corruption of our disposition that properly leads to our designation as sinners. In Colossians 1.21, Paul speaks of the godless sinners apart from Christ as those who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The sins of omission and commission illustrate both the privation and positive inclination of sinfulness, not doing what we're commanded and doing what we're forbidden, okay? Uh, what, what's the practical importance of this section? Uh, a sound biblical definition and understand, and I'm sure there's, there's many more applications you can make out of this, but 
Uh, a sound biblical definition and understanding of sin helps in a number of ways, among which are these. One, God's view of sin, enlightening our own understanding, you might say, puts sin in its place, which should give us the encouragement to face sin in ourselves and fight it, whatever the cost, and it will be costly. Okay? Two, it gives us a greater awareness of sin. Uh, I, I, frankly, I think that's one of the big challenges of the Christian life is to grow more and more aware of sin. So you're alert to, uh, we'll get to this in a moment, honestly, uh, the, the first motions of sin and temptation. Uh, it gives us a greater awareness of sin so that in a manner of speaking, it reduces the ability of sin to sneak up on us, okay, to catch us unawares. Uh, it also gives us, I think, is when that happens, when that first motions happens, it gives us the tools to, to deal with it right then, cut it off at the pass. I meant to say that, you know, you can interrupt me to ask questions even if we go over a bit or don't get our material done. So are there any questions up to this point? Okay. Section two, ethical and spiritual implications. If you're in your, if you have your book, this is page 43. Ethical and spiritual implications of the definition of sin in its privation, its positive inclination. In this section, Jones walks through how this plays out ethically and spiritually, which I had a hard time grasping the exact, exact way of spelling that out, but we'll, I'll give it a shot here in a moment. Um, he considers sin as it relates to God and the moral law of God, which uh, I, after reading this chapter, I'm convinced is the right way of looking at it. We look at sin in a lot of different ways, but we should look at it as it re relates to God's being, his holiness and righteousness, okay, and his law, uh, not, not simply as an independent thing. A couple of terms he uses, ethical, uh, again, just, I think the dictionary definitions of these were helpful to me anyway. Uh, ethical relating to moral principles and spiritual is uh, relating to or affecting the human spirit or soul. Both of these as opposed to material or physical things, okay? The battle is in these areas, is in here. In, in the spirit. And notice that we've moved now even closer to what goes on within the heart, mind, and soul of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Let me read from the book on page 43. Uh, a bit here. Lacking 
its own independent existence as a substance. Sin is an ethical opposite of, to what is good. Sin needed the good for its expression, for it only exists by and in connection and contrast with the good. Uh, Adam was created in holiness and righteousness before sin marred his original constitution. Sin borrows from the good, not from some independent evil that exists apart from God's creation. And you'll notice that uh, down through the ages, various heresies have uh, uh, tried to bring in that, that dualism between God and a, an independent evil person. Uh, sin does not so obliterate our humanity in the image of God that we no longer have a will, feelings, or passions. Adam had a will and passions before his fall, and nothing fundamentally changed in terms of the possession of these characteristics. Rather, the form of these characteristics was distorted and perverted. Adam did not stop loving or desiring, but his love and desire in his fallen estate was disordered. Okay? It was disordered from how God uh, created it. And, and I, I think it may be useful here just to point out one of the things that has helped me in the past is we need to pause occasionally and check our loves. What, what do we love? Is it right to love that thing? Is it, am I loving it inordinately? Okay, for in, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I think it can be fair to say, I love the idea of America and its government. Okay? Do I love it inordinately? Well, you can check me on that as time passes. But do I hold it, like other things, with an open hand to God, the God who... Uh, raises kings up, forms of government as well, and, and lowers them. Do I hold it, hold it with an open hand? And I think we're in a place right now where Christians need to be holding that with an open hand, frankly. Okay? Not doing what we need, what we can to fight for it, but, but whatever we do, holding it with an open hand. Okay, so... Uh, Ethical and spiritual implications. Since sin is ethical, what determines the rightness or wrongness of an action or thought or desire must be in relation to God's being, his character, etc. Well, here, I'm going to dwell on that for a moment. Not only his character, but consider, I mean, I, I just saw this. Uh, I happened to peek into that class. You all might want to move in there. I don't know, but... He's going over the Trinity, okay? Uh, the, the Trini it's not just God in his character, but notice that God in his triune relationships, love, okay, is, is what it predominantly seems to flow from that, 
okay? Do I measure my own actions against that Trinitarian love? Okay. Well, of course, if I do measure it that way, then, of course, you know who's going to not get points, not get brownie points. Uh, but it helps me understand where I'm at, where my loves are at, okay? Where my actions are at toward uh, my wife, who's walking out the door, I don't <laughs> uh, Toward uh, others in my life, okay? Toward God. Love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Well, that's the measure, that's the standard, <laughs> okay? I'm being sanctified toward that, okay? Um, okay, so it, it, we, we d sin is measured against God's, in relation to God's being, his character, his law. The law is divine, coming from God himself. Outward virtues, uh, especially of unbelievers, uh, Augustine talked about the splendid vices of under, unbelievers being outward good works. Um, outward virtues, virtues are not the same thing as good works, which must be done in faith by the Spirit to the glory of God. Okay? Romans 13, uh, 8 to 10 uh, helps here. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, now notice, notice what you're doing here. You're going from the particular, owe someone something, to the more general, but that's what Paul is, is pushing toward. He, he has a lot of particulars, okay? Don't get me wrong. But he, uh, he wants us to think in terms of love, okay? The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments toward people, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. That last one is an interesting one, of course. And any other commandment are summed up by this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, okay? Uh, from this, uh, Jones concludes this section this way. He says, good works must satisfy the demands of the law as spiritual. So the practical importance of this section, it helps us to understand that sin is or has no independent existence in itself and does not proceed from some evil some independent evil, but that it's dependent at some level on the good. And what determines the rightness or wrongness of an action must be in relation to God's person and law. And especially it helps us understand that a work, in order to be what God considers good, that, that's what we want to know, must be, uh, that is, done in faith uh, by the Spirit to the glory of God.
Are there any questions? Sir? These hard ones always come from Mike. Right. And of course, in, in this chapter, I, I didn't bring this out, but he has logical reasons why it's not an independent evil. Um, logical from the from theological point of view. Um, yes, and it's interesting that Puritans who dwelt on this quite a bit, uh, I don't think inordinately, came to this conclusion. It's a great mystery. Um, I, I don't know where it's, it's probably in Paul in the New Testament where it talks about the mystery of iniquity. Anything else? Okay. Um, Section three, voluntary and involuntary sin. Um, in this section, Jones addresses the question of whether sins of ignorance, and there are other words, mistake and uh, um, other words, arising without willing them or without premeditation or involuntarily are really sins, or another way of putting it, are sins only those that are willed. At the, at the most fundamental level, this should be an easy thing to, uh, should be an easy thing to answer. Uh, Levitic Leviticus 4 and 5 lists out a number of uh, in, in unintentional uh, sins. Let's see how it's... It lists out a number of unintentional sins, uh, and it summarizes it this way in in, in verse uh, in chapter five, verse seventeen to nineteen. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, and then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent, uh, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that in the ESV it puts it this way. I don't know what it, how it puts it other versions. The mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Uh, in Numbers uh, 15, 40, this is contrasted with the one, and you'll notice in Leviticus, there, there's, there's a way to deal with that. Okay? He, he, God gave him a way to deal with that. Uh, in Numbers 1540, this is contrasted with the one sinning with a high hand, reviling the Lord, despising the word of the Lord, uh, breaking his commandment. This person has no opportunity to offer a guilt offering, but is, is cut off. Uh, and this passage is immediately followed uh, by uh, an example, an immediate example of the Sabbath breaker being stoned to death by the, by the congregation. This leads to the conclusion that, that some sins are lesser in their degree than others. But if that's the case, you'll notice that what makes the difference uh, in these cases is whether they're 
involuntary or voluntary, not whether they're sin. Uh, later on, Jones, uh, Jones applies this in terms of degrees as stages or phases of sin, like in James, uh, a less serious sin leading to a more serious sin. Okay. Uh, more on that in a moment. In fact, in fact, let's just think about that for a moment. James uh, talks about the things that go on inside a person leading to the things that he does, he acts on. Okay. Uh, and, and Jones concludes, and I think rightly, that a, a sin thought on uh, but not leading to an action is still a sin, but it's a less serious sin because it doesn't have effects on people. Uh, but it's still a sin. Uh, God created humans. That should raise some questions. I don't know that I'll be able to answer them, but I'll stop for a moment to make sure. Okay. God created humans endowed with a will as rational creatures they, the, the will always acts in relation to the moral law, either in obedience or disobedience to its demands, with or against it. The, law, uh, the will always acts in relation to the moral law, okay, for, for, for any person. But sins of ignorance or strong desires, uh, concup concupiscence, as one one uh, Puritan put it, while, while lesser in degree of their sinfulness are not thereby excluded or excused, impure desires that arise in our understanding apart from a direct act of the will are still sin. I'm probably repeating myself, okay, but um, there's a fly up here. I don't know if he'll still be here when Blake comes. This is a good place to bring in a clarifying quote from Francis Turrentin. Uh, the very first, okay, here it is, the very first motions of concupiscence, uh, lust or strong desires, do not cease to be sins, although they, that is the first motions of, the, of what goes on inside a person, although they are ne neither wholly voluntary nor in our power. Uh, this refers to that first stirring of desire or thought that leads to temptation the very first motions. Romans uh, 7, 7 to 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, exclamation mark. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, now, uh, this, is a, this is a 
passage that's difficult to interpret, but at least for me, uh, but you see it expresses things that Jones has been laying out in this chapter. Unclean thoughts, even though they don't lead, lead to acts, are still contrary to the law of God. It seems evident to me that the commandment against coveting the property or wife of a neighbor falls into this category. Of course, it's true that a person can deliberately and willfully run uh, covetous thoughts through their mind. Okay, That's simply moving by the will beyond that first involuntary covetous thought. Okay, And there are other kinds of sins that go on in our mind too that are the same way. Let me read uh, what Bovink has to say. Herman Bovink on page 45. Uh, there, there is not only an antecedent prior, but also a concomitant with a consequent and an approving will. Repeat that. There is not only an antecedent, but also a concomitant, a consequent, and an approving will. Uh, later, to a greater or lesser degree, the will approves of the sinfulness of our nature and takes delight in it. I uh, can't remember the passage that he quoted on that. The will approves of the sinfulness of our nature and takes delight in it. Even the, the sin that is done without having been willed does not occur totally apart from the will. Uh, that, that probably de deserves some explanation. I'm not sure I'm able to explain it fully, but I, I know, here's what I observe, in one human nature anyway, my own. The, the, the working out of some actual, some outward sin or some meditated sin is not a thing that happened out of the blue. It happened because there are things that go on before it. You know. Uh, and, and in that sense, it's, it's not possible for the human person to trace it all back to the first thing. Uh, and that's why I think that Rob's topic last week was so important original sin. Uh, all of this is to say we can never excuse our unclean thoughts or desires just because they're not voluntary acts. The will, in a certain sense, is always at work since humans are never not willing. Okay? We may, we may, we may not quite grasp how we were willing but we are never not willing. We always will something. Uh, hence, as he points out, and I won't dwell on this too much, but he, he says sin has its degrees. That is, uh, eventually, a temptation leading to sin, it leads to a, from a lesser sin to a more heinous sin. Okay? The deliberation, the deliberation or desire to sin, understood as a disordered desire, 
cannot be excused even if it is not formally acted upon. It may be a lesser sin than if it had been acted upon and even subsequently enjoyed, but it is still sin because we are ultimately fully responsible for the inner workings of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you'll notice that that goes back to the uh, what what Jesus said. He quoted what he quoted from the Old Testament that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As re, as regenerate Christians, uh, he he puts this out for us, and it may. <laughs> And obviously, I'm not going to get to the end of this material, but this is a good place to end, I think. Uh, thankfully, by the Spirit, Romans 8.13, we have the power to take our thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, uh, conscience, conscious that we can inwardly, inwardly be sinfully tempted we depend upon God to change the inner man so that we can have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 And so, by God's grace, desire less and less things that are contrary to his will. In addition, while we do not excuse our, our disordered thoughts, we praise God that he keeps us from acting out on so much of what goes on inside. These are all mercies from a God who works in us by his spirit. Uh, this, section, this section helps us understand that there's no part of the inner person of the natural man that is free from sins, working, or defilement, and thereby helps us to avoid excusing our thoughts or desires. That, that, that step of, of not excusing our sin is, a, is an important step. Um, just because they're not voluntary acts, despite how that may sound, this is a step forward toward the conquering of sin in ourselves by the grace of God. Um, the next section had to do with human actions and then, of course, application. Uh, in application... Uh, he just wants us to fully engage our mind with understanding sin. Uh, those who do not see sin as an enemy will be destroyed by it. And when we see that we have no answer, this is important, when we see that we have no answer to sin in and of ourselves, then faith turns us to the only one who can deal with it the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And, of course, it's always appropriate to trot out John Owen's quote that if we are not killing sin, it will be killing us. Let's take a moment for questions, if you have any. All of this, all of this in this book is very, where, where was this question? Ken, uh-oh, this is bad.
what he says in here, and I would have to tend to agree with it, that uh, God created only the human with a will and thereby with the ability to sin. Angel. Yeah. Uh, if sin is a departure from the law of God willfully and willful rebellion, then no. I mean, apart from our fallen will, um, our choice to sin, God's creation will go on like he intends it to be. I mean, that's my immediate answer to it. It may be a bad answer, but... Right. And, 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 and by the way, just say, by the way, notice something here that uh, going back to Romans 1, you'll notice what eventually happens to a person. And I think there's other passages too. A person who goes on down this path will eventually fall into what we think of as animal, just animal m motions uh, of his inner person and his actions, you know. Uh, the, and, and and that's a that's a uh, uh, that's a slam on animals. By the way, I mean that's wrong. But but you, you understand it's it's like sin becomes a second nature that we can't get out of. It's an animal uh, animality, if you will. Okay. Jones makes quite a bit. Right. Okay. Um, we are way over and people are clamoring at the doors. So we'll be finished. Thank you.